0: it's s-w-o-p-e-s my crew my boo my weeds the best so ahead of my time you can't see me yet but the last thing you'll ever see is me be stressed Mm. hey 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 everybody welcome to my podcast it is me elise swopes oof i could be real 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 messy right now if i felt like it what a time to be alive huh My goodness, I'm I'm like reading my timeline as I'm just going into recording this, and I'm just like, you can get canceled, you can get canceled, you can get canceled. Ugh, what a time. I mean, a lot of people's true colors are starting to be shown, you know, and it's not a time to not pick a side, you know? I think it's really just about humanity right now, and it's about being a good person, Okay, so today's three topics we're going to talk about specifically are going to be self-care, systemic racism, and police reform, because why not, huh? And I thought it'd be great to just at least use my platform for good to educate, to incite, to inspire, to just internalize, because the thing is, is that most of my audience is black, So, you know, you guys don't necessarily need to listen to this episode. You know, that that whole blackout day was fantastic, but I felt like when every time I saw a black person doing a blackout, I'm like, but you're black, and your life is a prime example of a blackout. So, love y'all, appreciate it a ton, but this one is for the people who don't know. Now, the reason why I'm going to be talking about self-care specifically on this episode is because I think there has a lot to do with... Racism and the way police are And the way that the system is controlled and regulated And self-care begins Mm -hmm. with a care for oneself (laughs) It's the feeling that someone has for who they are Their self-esteem Their intention for how they treat themselves And for how they treat others Now, self-care can help you boost productivity It can help you care for others a little bit more It can help you care for yourself, like I said And it can help you feel way more fulfilled And the thing about self-care is that it requires a sense of sacrifice For your own greater good Because sometimes, you know, we like to believe that Having freedom means doing anything we want When in all actuality, having real freedom is sacrificing certain things So that we can feel better at the end of the day Going to bed earlier, eating well, working out There's all a lot of sacrifices within that And if we come out on the other side We'll start to realize that it was actually quite worth it And that's when it comes to self-care Is that self-care requires you to be aware of yourself It requires you to be aware of your time And it requires you to not take the easy route It's hard Self-care is difficult And that's why racists don't have much self-care. The thing about racism is that it stems from something very specific, and I'll tell you what. Racism, at the end of the day, is a psychological defense mechanism. And let me repeat that for you. Racism (laughs) is a psychological defense mechanism. And when I say that, I mean that wholeheartedly. Now, when it comes to racism, and the research has been shown, that when people are given reminders of their own mortality, they feel a sense of anxiety and insecurity, right? And that which they respond to be becoming, you know, more prone to status-seeking, materialism, greed, prejudice, aggression. They're more likely to conform to culturally accepted attitudes and to identify with their national or ethnic groups. Now, the thing is, when it comes to that, is that it has everything to do with one's feeling and significance If you're feeling any kind of security or belonging in your own self Why would you ever need to feel like you need to protect yourself against a threat? So of course racism is going to give a similar response in this sense of insignificance and unease, inadequacy. You think about these people who are truly, at the end of the day, really concerned about themselves. They're concerned that what they love might be taken away. They're concerned about their lacking identity. They're concerned about their insecurities and what they lack. At the end of the day, that's really the problem. If people could for a second, just love themselves fully and wholly, there would be no need for racism. There would be no need for a defense mechanism for people to feel like they're being threatened by their own inadequacy. Now, someone doesn't even need to do anything to be threatening now. Instead, all they have to do is exist. And that's merely what's happening now. So that's where self-care comes into play is that if someone in these people could at least check in with themselves and take care of themselves, maybe they could start with love. And that's where a majority of people do begin. But unfortunately, a lot of these people are lost in the sauce. So let's give them some advice, huh? Let's go. Now I'll be honest with you, it's not my problem to educate anybody at the end of the day I'm not going to be out here educating grown adults, okay? That's just not what I do. I am someone who speaks from the heart, who isn't going to hold anyone accountable. And I think it's more important that people learn through their own mistakes, because that's the way I learned, and I'm very experiential. But at this very moment in time, we're at a crisis. It's not just this coronavirus that we're dealing with. We're dealing with racism. And racism is an everlasting situation. It's not just, hey, everybody, let's go protest for this week. And if they, you know, make sure that all these people are charged, then that's great. But it's deep-rooted. And that's what we're going to talk about on our second topic with systemic racism. Now, The first step to self-care specifically is you're going to be wanting to make sure that you are sleeping correctly, everybody. That's a big thing. Everybody's always talking about, I can't sleep. My sleep is horrible. I'm an insomniac, right? They're just almost kind of like unrealistic. Their expectations are too low. They're exaggerating. You're just like, I'm never going to be able to sleep again. My life is ruined. It's catastrophic. It's almost hopeless, (laughs) But you gotta be aware of your words. Watch your words because those are the things that are really setting you straight. I mean, at the end of the day, emotions can trigger activity within your body. And if you can talk yourself through an emotion or an idea, your body is going to react to that. So if you keep telling yourself you can't sleep, or maybe you keep telling yourself that your best time to do and edit and create or whatever is at 3 a.m., then that's when your body's gonna give you it's real. That's just how it works. It's science, okay? I'm not just making this it. <laughs> Now, And, of course, there's a ton of other situations when it comes to sleep. I mean, you know, we can go to the mental illness side of it. For me specifically, when I had anxiety and depression and just a lot of questions and stress in my life. and You know, there's a lot that your body does and has to keep up with in that survival mode. That it can't rest. And so when you're always in that mode to kind of survive and exist and make sure that you're always safe and sane, there's going to be other issues that are going to come up. So you're going to get these mental illnesses. You're going to get diseases. You're going to get sick. Be aware of how you're internalizing your situations and how your body's reacting to it. Because the less sleep you get, the less your body's going to be able to fight off any infections and any diseases and any things. Now you got to be careful about those things. So that's where your self-care comes into is you got to also be sure that you're handling your business. A lot of my biggest issues used to be my finances. And when I finally asked for help, I humbled myself and I say, okay, I don't know what I'm doing at all. Someone please help me that's finally when I can rest a little bit easier. And of course, it took a couple of years to get myself back and on track and learning and how to get everything done, but it's a process that I would not have traded for the world. And you've got to ask yourself sometimes the reason behind why you may be feeling a certain way, why you may be anxious, why you may be depressed, why you may not be sleeping, why you may not be taking care of yourself. And that takes vulnerability. There's a concept called the five whys. If you continuously keep asking yourself the why question after every answer, you reply with a question you ask yourself. So for example, maybe you're asking yourself, okay, why can't I go to bed at night? And you say, well, I drank some coffee in the day and I'm feeling really restless and worried about something. And then your next question will be, well, why did I drink coffee and why do I feel restless? Well, I feel restless because I've got something or a project coming up that I haven't prepared for and I drank coffee because I needed to stay up for this project and then the next question is well why do you have to stay up for the project and why are you not prepared and you say well I'm not prepared because I didn't make time to be prepared and I have to drink coffee because or I have to stay up or work at this time whatever it was (laughs) You know, you're answering your questions. and more you ask yourself, why? You're getting to the root of the issue. The root of the issue is really what you're trying to get to. Stop covering everything up to be a name or a thing or I'm sad, I'm this I'm that. Like, get to the root of why you can't sleep. Get to the root of why you have anxiety. Get to the root of the stress. Don't cover up with a pill. Don't cover up with just excuses. Some people need those things. And that's fine. There's no judgment there. But if that's for you, then you better pay attention. (laughs) So watch your words, ask for help, and ask your five whys. And also, if you need to specifically to try to figure out really what's going on with your sleep patterns, you might want to have a sleep diary. That's important. That could help. My second advice when it comes to taking self-care seriously is making sure that your gut health is good. That means eating well, having some vitamins, supplements, maybe growing a plant or two if you can. And... If you cook at home, the easiest way that I kind of think it is is having kind of like a menu in your head for the week. And within that menu, fit some cozy meals in. Fit some favorites, you know. Have some sweets. Have some homey, cozy stuff. Don't just have all perfect healthy things. I think it's good to have a break. It's good to make yourself feel good and be happy and cozy. Another tip is make sure that you're exercising, stretching. Stretching is huge. You gotta get that blood flowing You don't gotta be out here lifting friggin tons of weights You gotta be out here doing the most Figure out what works for you Try a bunch of different apps You can do yoga, running, hit. You can do everything I mean anything in the world you can do Just move your body Walk outside a little bit Get some air I know it's, it's quite a different time right now But if you can just move It'll really help you out But Within moving, too, you've got to make sure that when you're doing something, pay attention to how your body's kind of existing. Like, is your face kind of tight? Like, relax your eyes. Relax your jaw. Relax your shoulders. Just kind of sit up straight. And just kind of like every now and then, kind of checking in with yourself, make sure that you're not tensing up. Because you can kind of get used to that. You can kind of get used to that feeling of kind of feeling, you know, like you're just tensed. So stretch it out. Get it loose. And also, get ready for the day. Take a shower. You know, some days you don't got to take a shower. Some days you can just be gross. I like to say gross because you're just hanging out, being with yourself. You don't got to change. You're going to do nothing. If you feel like doing that, then do it. It's cool. But sometimes it feels just good to take a shower. It feels nice to hit a little reset. Yeah. So also another tip within self-care is making sure that you're saying no more to others and saying yes more to yourself. That means saying You know, more positive self-talk. Also, making more time for you. Being alone is huge. Huge, huge, huge. Meditating when you're alone. Being alone with your thoughts. Uh, Having more awareness in your everyday and just being more mindful of your actions and why and when and what you're doing. For what reason. (laughs) And being kind to yourself and just really honing in on that kindness and being your own friend, most importantly, and being patient with yourself. And unplugging, like I said, unplugging when you need to, because unplugging is huge. It's important. It's absolutely necessary. So yeah, be gross. (laughs) Says me. Another great thing to do for self-care is to get organized, to set your goals, to think about the long term, to think about the short term, to think about the immediate tasks at hand. And what I've done specifically is to think about, you know, what I want to retire with, what do I want to be, who do I want to be to other people and for me specifically that entailed just breaking those things down and breaking them into things that are actually accomplishable and sometimes we can get lost in all the things that are going on every day around us where we think we need to accomplish all these tasks to get by but are they really making an effort in our own grand scheme of things and that's where I kind of put myself in a perspective and kind of pulled myself in and stopped spreading myself so thin. And it really helped my anxiety. It really helped my aimlessness. It helped the feeling of just comparison even, you know, if I see somebody else doing something that's successful It doesn't mean that I have to do that because it's not a part of my story, it's not a part of my plan, it's not a part of my tasks. I mean, I can use something from that success to accomplish something else that's a part of my plan, of course, you can use and be inspired by whatever, but you just can't make it everything and can't assume that that's what you should be doing, right? So think about that Think about your long term, think about your short term And think about how you can do immediate tasks In order to accomplish those things Because you want to be realistic And you want to have genuine to-do lists Because the more you have to-do lists The more momentum you give yourself The more momentum you have The less you have to rely on motivation The less you have to rely on inspiration The less you have to rely on all the other things That everybody says they need In order to start and begin something All you need is yourself and the tenacity to simply go now you also want to have a set routine for yourself and it can switch up if you don't feel like doing it you don't have to but it is really important to have a good morning routine to uh, wake up at the same time every day to practice meditation just having a moment with yourself and kind of educating yourself reading a book whether it be just have some time you know, and it's good to have that time to just analyze, to maybe practice some gratitude, maybe have a five-minute journal where you specifically write down five things you're looking forward to in the day, five things that even at in the night that you should be doing, writing five good things that did happen in the day, and just confronting those things and being analytical even in the things that didn't work out which is really, really important because the more you confront any negativity or any judgment that you have on your own life, the the better you can kind of become. Know when to also relax a part of that organization and a to-do list. You got to know when to say, all right, that's enough for the day because Specifically, what I like to do with my to-do list is I'll have one thing a day, one big thing or two big things that I'll accomplish, and then the rest are just little tasks that need to be done. And when I finish those things, there's nothing more for me to do because all the other things are for the next day. And just allow yourself to have a break. Allow yourself to say, okay, that's it for the day because you don't always have to work till 9 p.m. You don't always have to do the same project for five hours straight. Do a big project for two hours one day, do it two hours the next, do it two hours a day after that, and call it quits. And if someone's expecting you to do something crazy, and have a little bit more communication, because I'm telling you, communication is everything, and you can really explain yourself through some wonderful things. That brings me to my next point now. You're going to want to educate yourself And you're going to want to read You're going to want to keep bettering yourself And just getting better at your craft And that could be watching some online classes That could be reading some books I could even be helping other people The more you help other people The more you really help yourself You go outside your comfort zone I started mentoring a lot of people And that has changed my life tremendously I'm getting to hear more stories I am Really, just putting myself in a position to go with the flow. And I think there's something really cool about that. Instead of being driven by fear, I'm really just driven by the unknown. (laughs) So be driven by the unknown for yourself. Read, educate yourself. You're never always completely a million percent done with learning anything. So have fun with that and enjoy the little things. Okay. And those are just a few tips for self care. Of course, self care comes in. Many different packages, many different wrappings, many different bows, but if self-care to you is something that makes you happy, if it makes you feel whole, if it it brings you genuine thrill and excitement, then it's for you, and it, of course, doesn't hurt anybody else, then... (laughs) You should continue doing that. And that ties into your job and what you do on a day-to-day. A lot of people are unhappy with their existence and they're unhappy with their choices. And that can come across in a lot of ways that they treat other people. So that brings me to my next topic. Now, like how I was saying before, systemic racism is just simply a psychological defense mechanism that was created very long ago from the concept of the hunter-gatherer tribes. Now, if you think about it, it would have done our ancestors really no good to be altruistic and allow other groups to share their resources. That would have literally just decreased their own chances of survival. But if they could oppress other groups, That could increase their own access to resources. And that's exactly what they did. You'd think that, you know, in order to survive, they would have cut access to other people. But in reality, they really just came together. They were fairly fluid and they always liked being in groups. They would visit each other quite often. They would have marriage alliances, sometimes just switching different members. They would not think that any of that kind of behavior would ever associate with racism. So innately, as human beings, we really are not racist. (laughs) Alternatively, you'd think that maybe racist is maybe a psychological defense like I was talking about. It's quite generated by feelings of insecurity and anxiety. There is some evidence to say that it's a theory of terror management, And I say that with quotations, because the thing about terror management is it really just has everything to do with someone's own fear of their own mortality. So it's really just a sense of anxiety and security, which is a response to their fear of everything they're losing. So, you know, they're more materialistic, they're more greedy, they're more prejudiced, they're they're way more aggressive. They're just way more into status seeking. If people are way more inept to chasing something and chasing an idea, then they're way more likely to conform to culturally accepted attitudes, and to identify with their national ethnic groups. I mean, at the end of the day, they're really just trying to stick with what's comfortable instead of being afraid or fearful of what they don't know. Racism is really merely, simply, just a response to a more general sense of insignificance, unease, and inadequacy. Now a few reasons why someone might feel inadequate or unsure of themselves of course is they feel insecure or they feel a lack of identity. There's also a huge lack of empathy because there's just no connection, there's no openness, there's no communication. They just feel like there's nothing to be understood when there's so much people can talk about with each other. And of course their own prejudices and their own experiences and their own stereotypes can't generalize if you've had one experience with one person that doesn't mean that every single person is like that and that's the same way with anything we've got to be realistic on that term but in certain cases when it comes to the cops if one cop is bad they're all bad because they got to hold themselves accountable and i haven't remembered one time when we haven't hold our own accountable and we always do Another reason is is that they just really don't want to have responsibility for anything. They are not humble. They think everything is somebody else's fault. It's just narcissistic, really revengeful, and completely paranoid. And it's really just avoidance of blame. And they want to choose a scapegoat for things that they may be very liable on. So just a few horrible psychological instances where someone can genuinely become racist in their own way by just ignoring their own faults and issues. If they would just choose self-care, if they would choose self-awareness, maybe we wouldn't be in this problem. Now, that's the psychological reasoning behind racism. Now, there's, of course, the systemic reasoning behind a lot of the things we're dealing with and of course those are the reasons why these systemic situations were created in the first place but systemic is really simply racism that is embedded in the structure of society okay and there's a lot of facts and statistics that can back this up and those are the things i'm going to share with you specifically Now, one of the biggest issues when it comes to systemic racism is the wealth gap. And according to one study, white families hold 90% of the national wealth. Latino families hold 2.3% and black families hold 2.6. Not only that, the Great Recession hit minority families particularly hard and the wealth gap increased. Think about this. For every $100 white family earns in income, black families earn just $57.30. That's literally ridiculous. And that doesn't just stem from something out of nowhere. It's institutionalized from the slave era. It's when people needed to get back on their feet and they weren't able to. They started with nothing. And this is where they are now. And of course, it's impossible to build any kind of wealth without any kind of employment. And black Americans are actually two times likely to be unemployed. And over the last 60 years, no matter what, has been going on with the economy. It's always been that way. And it has a lot to do with education because blacks with college degrees are twice as likely to be unemployed as all other graduates. And even then, a lot of them can't go to college because of the systemic situation that deals with the wealth gap in the first place. Now, there was a study that job applicants specifically with white-sounding names got called back about 50% more than applicants with black-sounding names. It's a fact, you guys. Even when it comes to Airbnbs, God forbid I can't stand Airbnb, but all the people, who even guests with distinct black names, get less positive reviews from property owners. So that's pretty ridiculous in itself. Also, when it comes to education, if you ever thought that preschool at least was a racism-free kind of zone is really not considered this. So black children constitute 18% of preschoolers nationwide, and they make up nearly 50% of suspensions. And the problem is is that black students are three times more likely than white students to be suspended for the same infractions. So if black students represent 16% of all student enrollment and all of the educators or whoever in the system decides to refer 27% of those to law enforcement while being educated, once they're in the justice system, they're 18 times more likely than whites to be sentenced as adults, okay? Now, another big issue is the criminal justice situation, right? So, given that Black people make 13% of the population. Unfortunately, they represent 40% of the prison population. So you ask yourself, why is that? Perhaps it's because if a black person and a white person each commit a crime, the black person has a better chance of being arrested or murdered, as we've seen. It's also true that once arrested, black people are convicted more often than white people. And of course, their are laws assigned much harsher sentences. It's just unbelievable how so messed up and uneven the situation is and when they're sentenced they're 20 times more likely to be sentenced to jail time and typically see sentences 20 percent more than those who are white now don't even get me started on the housing situation when the government sought to make mortgages more affordable back in the 1930s they were kind of jumpstarting suburban living, right? But of course, the homeowners' loan corporation ranked neighborhoods all across the country, giving high marks to all white neighborhoods and marking those with minorities in red as risky investments. So redlining, which is essentially barred blacks and other minorities from sharing in the American dream and building wealth like their white counterparts. Which was officially outlawed in the 60s, but the practice really never went away. I mean, it's really just ingrained in the system. In fact, during the Great Recession, banks routinely and purposely guided black home buyers toward subprime loans. A recent study even demonstrated that people of color are told about and shown fewer homes and apartments than white people. Black ownership is now at an all time low, which is 42% compared to 72% of whites. Now the police, if you're white, of course, you don't really need to worry too much about police, but day-to-day reality for African-Americans is quite different and for people around the world, Who are of color. More than half of all young black Americans know someone, including themselves, who have been harassed by the police. Statistics also show that black drivers are about 30% more likely than whites to be pulled over by police. And we know how that has gone plenty of times when it comes to Sandra Bland, when it comes to so many of these people who have lost their life simply by being pulled over. You know, what's pretty funny, actually. African Americans are monitored pretty heavily, but the issue is is that they're actually twice as likely to die in pedestrian accidents than white people are. And I probably think that's probably because, you know, in certain studies, motorists are actually less likely to stop for black people on the crosswalks. So now if that wasn't enough... Of course, African-Americans face discrimination in the healthcare world, too. A 2012 study found that a majority of doctors have unconscious racial biases when it comes to their black patients. Black Americans have far more likely to have a lack to emergency medical care. The hospitals that they go to tend to be less funded are not staffed by practitioners who have a lot of experience and even black doctors face discriminations. They're less likely to have credentials. They're less likely to receive government grants. And it's really just a lifetime of just really vulnerable, stressful health issues that really don't need to be had. Now you put that in with all of these other things, stress, health, all of this, and then they're not even gonna be taken care of? Oh my gosh, it's just isn't a whole issue. And so if that's not systemic enough for you, I don't know what is. Now if you'd like to take some steps in order to defeat these things on a day-to-day basis, here are a few things that I'd like to share with you that you can do specifically. Now, you can learn about other people and their culture, beyond going to food festivals and concerts and stuff like that, and explore the unfamiliar. Put yourself in situations where you are a visible minority, all right? And you've got to be a proactive person. You know, talk to your family, talk to the people you know, and don't tell or laugh about jokes that are stereotypical. Just don't. Think before you speak because words can hurt not just other people, but you, and ruin your entire life. So don't hurt other people and don't hurt yourself. Don't make assumptions because they're genuinely always wrong and they're really just destructive. So consider how race and racism impact your life and those around you and make some needed changes. Don't let other people get away with biased language or behavior. Speak up and speak out. And take a position against hate and stand against racism. Now, this part of the podcast might sound a little different because I've decided that it would be an important thing to do to change it because initially I had conversations about police reform, but I had been educated quite enough about a lot of the things that reform can't do for What we need, and reform in itself is really—it feels like some kind of compromise, you know, with the police. When in actuality, we need justice for all the lives that have been taken, all of the systemic racism, and 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 just the unbelievable amount of just segregation in every sense of the case. And so now we're going to have to just switch it up a little bit into the concept of abolishing the police, okay? And now abolishment is, I mean, it seems radical, doesn't it? I mean, it's not that radical because the concept of abolishment is really just allocating those funds, defunding the police, and putting those funds back in the community where they need it most. And that's in affordable housing, that's in mental health, that's in education. We really need to get it right. So a few of those ways to abolish police where we can all be good and safe and this comes from the 8-2 Abolition Project which is A really really great project A lot of people are talking about this Eight can't wait concept But a lot of those things they seem nice on the surface But at the end of the day it really requires A lot more money to be devoted into the police And that's the last thing we want We want to take a lot of that money Millions of dollars and put it Into something else that matters So that we can start from the ground up Instead of depleting sources at the bottom Where all of the issues are starting And beginning how about you put it where the issues are. So let's really talk about it, right? So one of the first steps to prison and police abolition, and I have to say prison because it is a part of the police system, is to defund the police. And the easiest way to defund the police is to reject any proposed expansions to the police budget and demand the highest budget counts per year until they really slash the police budget to, you know, zero. And we require no city police. You know, at certain points, it's going to require the police and not the state, not us, to be liable for the misconduct and violence that they induce. And we should not be liable for their violent sentiments, we should indeed reduce the power that the police unions have, which is huge because the police unions protect the police in so many different ways when it comes to protecting them in the courts, when it comes to helping them keep their jobs while they're being indicted or whatever the case may be. We've got to understand that the need to abolish the asset programs and laws that they have is huge, it's necessary. Because those things are clearly not helping And if year after year after year if things are getting worse Then really you've got to see what the problem is Now that will indeed prohibit the need for like schemes to happen And so that people can use the system to their advantage So that police and politicians and all these people Cannot abuse their power Money cannot be power We've got to take it away Another way to abolish police is to demilitarize communities. We don't need military in our communities. Disarm law enforcement officers, including the police and private security, they don't need guns. No one needs guns, especially them, because time after time after time, we've seen that they've done wrong with it. So what do you do when someone does something wrong continuously, time after time after time, you take their giant weapons away. And all of the contracts with private companies that provide surveillance equipment. I'm pretty sure IBM hasn't made an announcement that they are going to stop providing the police with technology, which is huge, but we've got to hold them accountable. This is not going to be a week thing. This is not going to be a month thing. It's not going to be a year. We're going to need people to act accordingly for years to come from every level. Now, we're also going to need to withdraw participation in police militarization programs. I mean, stop teaching them military stuff. They're not in the military. They don't need to know military things. The military should know military stuff. It's that simple. You've got to repeal all the laws that hide, excuse, or enable police misconduct when it comes to this kind of thing. They cannot be allowed to be militarized. We've also got to make sure that we remove police from schools, okay? This is huge. Police don't need to be at schools. Remove police from all schools and call on universities to dissolve relationship with police departments. Universities give so much money to the police. They need to stop and they have to not have contracts with each other year after year after year. Time and time again, it's been proven that teachers and faculty and counselors and school officials have worked with the police to surveillance black and brown people because they seem sketchy to them or they seem different. It's unbelievable. Okay. Now we've got to free people from prisons. Prisons are created by a system that was made to hold people down from which they invented themselves, if that makes sense. It's a cyclical, diminishing, inhumane process that is doing exactly as it's supposed to. Ruining people's lives and taking away so many people's life. We've got to free people from prison, okay? We've got to permanently close a lot of local jails, maybe all of them, honestly, 100% of them. Pressure state legislators to end arrests that lead to criminalizations of people of gendered violence. Honestly, trans people are attacked more and more and more all the time, and it's infuriating to see the insensitivity on every level. They're just as important. So we've got to understand that there's danger to all black people, all brown and black people, okay? You've got to, and it's ingrained in us, but you've got to remove the idea that there's another way to incarcerate people who do nonviolent crimes. There's no reason for anyone who is nonviolent to be in prison, and especially if they have been hurt themselves there's so many people in prison who have and especially women trans women who are in prison who are there because they were protecting themselves from someone so we've got to cut funding to prosecutor offices we've got to end pretrial detention we've got to end civil commitment and We've got to, got to, got to. And this is not just, you know, about black people right now. We've also got to end immigration detention and family separation and let undocumented community members come home. ICE is just, I mean, it's our modern-day concentration camps. It's not to be looked away from, and I have no idea how we can even bring justice to the pain and the torture that's already been induced to so many people. But we can try by these steps, little by little. We've also got to repeal laws that criminalize survival. Like I said, this is where it really, really, really comes into play. Repeal local ordinance that criminalize people involved in sex trades, drug trades, or street economies. These people are playing the game that they were born into. You know, a lot of people are just trying to survive just like anybody else. And we've got to understand that there needs to be a way to help survivors. We've got to end all fines and fees associated with the criminal legal process that have things to do with survivors and gender violence. These people are homeless. They're more homeless than anybody else. We've got to protect them. Because they're our culture. Those are the people who create our culture, our, our memes, our funny words, our, <laughs> our everything. They are the entertainment that brings this world to life. It's the energy, the soul, the brightness. When you diminish that, what are you really doing to ourselves? Another way to abolish the police is to invest in community self-governance, okay? That means we can do this ourselves. We've been doing stuff ourselves. We know how to do this. We've promoted. We've got GoFundMes. We've got change. we got petitions. We have millions and millions of people who are willing to do the right thing over the small amount. And this is when it comes into play. They need to get out of our way because it's time for us to do what needs to be done. So, promote neighborhood councils as representative bodies within municipal decision-making. Assess community needs and invest in community-based resources. Invest in community-based public safety approaches, including nonviolent crimes, okay? And intervention programs and skill-based education and just... Everything that has to do with surviving in this world, from consent, to boundaries, to healthy relationships, to mental health, to just what it takes to be happy and at peace. Another way is to provide safe housing for everyone. There is a housing crisis. Gentrification is real. People are losing their homes and they are homeless. Cancel rent without the burden of repayment during COVID. And this is huge. A lot of people should be doing this. And they're not. It's greed. It's not even just that. It comes from the top up. Even people who own buildings sometimes, they're struggling themselves. I mean, at least in New York, you know, there's a lot of generational people, homebody people who live in the home that they have that have been passed down by generations where they're just trying to do their best. But their best isn't enough because of the system, of the system that's trickled down even to the smallest person who can't even pay their rent. Now, another few tips within that provide housing for everyone is to repurpose empty buildings and houses and apartments and hotels and house people experiencing homelessness. There are millions of empty places in this country that are just waiting for people to go into them. Provide that space for them. Give up your space. Prohibit evictions and uh, allow community benefit agreements to be community governed. That just means that we've got to have the say-so. We've got to have the say-so. We have to give land trusts to black and historically displaced communities. We've got to ensure that survivors of gendered violence have access to alternative housing options if they're being hurt. Okay? You have to... Understand that there needs to be a space For queer and trans people to be comfortable To identify, to grow That's been forever And that dates back to New York City's Ballroom culture scene in the 1980s Which was called houses where they had mothers And people who took care of trans and LGBTQ people And that needs to be a system thing. It needs to be a traditional safe space for people who need it. And last but not definitely least, we've got to invest in care and not cops. Like I've been saying, we've got to allocate those city funding towards healthcare infrastructure. The healthcare system, like I said, is completely depleted for those of color. We've got to make sure that these services are available for free to low-income residents. We've got to invest in teachers and counselors, universal health care and child care, support for all family structures. They've got to be free public transit. End of the use of property taxes to determine school funding. Install safe and sanitary gender-neutral public restrooms. This is simple. Everyone's safe, okay? Ensure investments in community based food banks, grocery cooperatives, gardens, and farms. People need access to food. They need food. Okay? And invest in youth programs that promote learning, safety, and community care. We've got to try harder. We really do. So I hope a few of those ideas help somebody somewhere. And I just pray that all of this. Make some changes because we deserve it. This is too much. We've had enough. And I'm ready for just a different energy, even when it comes to our politics. I mean, vote in November. Please vote. Vote. And then vote in June. Vote in the primaries. Vote in everything. Vote. And stay educated I'm going to be posting as much as I can About every single one that happens I'm going to be on top of it There's no more games, no more ignorance Nothing like that We're all going to make sure That we get this world together Because we can do it Thank you again for listening I know as always there's so much going on And you're taking the wonderful time and the moment To listen and to educate yourself And I really, really appreciate that And that's huge for you We'll talk next time Take care